Hello, everybody. It's Brian Castle, and I'm here uh, with the Four Star Podcast. Welcome to the Four Star Podcast for today, which happens to be Tuesday, the 19th of November, uh, the great year of 2019. Uh, with me, I have uh, Mr. Christopher Reardon. Hello, everyone. And many of you know Chris Reardon. Chris Reardon is now a newly married man, Chris, aren't you? Yep. <laughs> uh, congratulations. We'll talk about that. Uh, he's our four-star director of development, and I call him the master of all things portfolio, trading, uh, reports. He still loves his Cleveland Indians, and he's the caretaker of his new golden doodle, Puppy Hudson, raised near the Factory of Sadness, which is now the home of the formerly resurgent but not so resurgent Cleveland Browns anymore, right, Chris? Four and six. Uh, they're on their way back to yeah. a two-game uh, two win streak. <laughs> they were expected to be in the Super Bowl, just like our Chicago Bears, right? Yeah, we'll okay. see. Okay, that's not how's that working out. <laughs> anyway, and of course, I'm Brian Castle, and I'm your founder of the CEO, CEO and founder of Four Star Wealth Advisors in Chicago. I'm an Eagle Scout, and I'm a trustee of the National Boy Scout Foundation. I'm a charter advisor of philanthropy, an investment advisor to CEOs and insiders of public companies, chief investment officer and founder of our firm. But most importantly, I'm dad to the two greatest young men in the world, Evan and Quinn, uh, and husband to the amazing Tripti. And I'm a fan of the also supposedly resurgent, but no longer resurgent Chicago Bears. So anyway, well, welcome, Chris, to the podcast, and welcome all of you to the podcast. We have a lot to unpack and a lot to talk about today. Mm -hmm. So why don't we get started with the markets? Let's do our positioning on the markets. And Chris, where are we today on the tug of war between good and bad, markets up and markets down? The bull and the bear, right? Yeah. Um, so right now, as our, all our indicators are on offense. I believe as, as of the last podcast, it was kind of the same. We're still on, on offense. Uh, we're starting to see a little bit of movement from an asset allocation front. Um, the domestic equities kind of tally score, I guess you could say, is moving up. Uh, slightly, it's actually approaching um, the highs, uh, the highest we've seen it in the last four to five years. Uh, it's about seven to eight points below that on this tally score system. Uh, on this tally have, score right, system, right, correct right. that we have. So um, still has a little bit of room to run, uh, but we're starting to see it finally move up again. Uh, international equities is in the second spot. Uh, that's moving up, albeit at a much slower pace. Uh, we're seeing it kind of stagnant and a little bit of movement upwards. Uh, and third, we have fixed income. Uh, that's been stagnant and a downward movement, so slightly downward. Uh, and the same with commodities in the fourth spot. And then uh, fifth and sixth, rounding it out, we have cash and currencies. And cash is really where we've seen um, as domestic equities and international equities have gained um, a little bit, a lot of that's come from cash, uh, which is a good sign that that means that, you know, cash usually rises to the top in a high volatile environment. Uh, so that means there's a little less volatility going on right now. And uh, it means that domestic equities are kind of starting to run again, which we're hitting new highs and that's what you would expect. So, um, you know, we're right now on all offense and, um, you know, we're, we're kind of, you know, moving forward. It's an interesting year because after the rough collapse of the fourth quarter in 2018, then we had a huge rally right in the first quarter of 2019. But then we didn't see a lot of movement 
for the rest of the year. In fact, we got a few calls from some investors who said, gee, my, my statement was flat or down in October. Well, you know, there's always this thing where for many two points, you can say, you know, from this point to this point, you know, the value was up or from this point to this point, the value was down. It just so happened that the month of October ended up being a flat month, right? Mm -hmm. So there's all these expectations and then you hear the media. The media has nothing else to talk about. They talk about the market if it hits a new high. So um, we're every, and, but by definition, when you're at a new high and it goes up just a point even, it's another new high, right? So they talk about new high, new high, new high. Everybody's excited every day and that, that means it's probably a slow news day, right? But, but anyway, uh, it's a new high every day, but then people's expectations are, gee, my portfolio wasn't going up or whatever. But there are times when the market just takes a, bre a breather. That's what happened in October, but now we're hitting new highs again in November. Exactly. Yeah. And people, you know, people were expecting the fourth quarter is usually a high growth period. You have the holidays, you have a lot of consumer spending, people are happy. Um, usually that's when you see really, really, really strong growth. Um, so I think people were expecting a little bit more in October, but you had just a lot of event driven news, which we've talked about on several of these podcasts that really caused a little bit more volatility than, um, you know, people were expecting. Yeah. So then uh, that's good news. So, Chris, we're all on offense, right? Yep. And the bias, the U.S. stocks are still the leader in gaining a little bit again. Just when mm -hmm. you thought they couldn't gain relative strength, they do. And then international, the bias is up but not super strong. Uh, but that's in second place. And the other four major asset classes in dollar terms are, just to, to, to characterize where they are, they're kind of negatively biased. They're not working as well. Commodities, currencies, cash, and fixed income. Yep. Right. That, that would be correct. Yeah, so that's kind of where we are. And so um, for those who have the ability to take risk, and not everyone does because they can't maybe take their, you know, the downside if things don't go well, uh, this, uh, by our work, is, is a, a likelihood uh, of a time to take risk, right? Mm -hmm. uh, in a measured way, in a diversified way, and all the other caveats. But this is a time when you probably get rewarded for taking risk as compared to when the markets are co contracting. Yeah, and, and, and we're going back a little bit to kind of that 2017, early 2018 environment. I mean, we've had rate um, decreases the last couple of times. So, um, you know, it, bond rates and everything are getting a little less lucrative again. So, you know, it's, it's getting a little bit easier to take that little extra risk because you're just getting a lot more for it. Yeah, right now. And it feels good like the year of 2017 when the markets were really low volatility and, and strong returns and people kind of, it's easy to kind of have this recency bias and forget, oh yeah, there's volatility, right? And then we have this terrible quarter, the fourth quarter of 2018, everybody's in a panic again. Uh, a lot of studies about human behavior and behavioral economics talk about how we tend to view things uh, in, in relation to what happened to us in the last year. Uh, that's part of the human condition. Uh, you can override that by different thinking. But right now when the markets are at high, everybody's excited. But when the markets are low, everybody should be excited. They shouldn't be maybe totally excited when, when we're at a high, right? But but the bias is we're not seeing any indicator ne turning negatives any, anymore. So the bias is that the markets are traveling upward and it's most likely going to continue until, of course, it doesn't. And we'll let you know, right? Well, and one interesting thing, um, you know, everyone when we're at these all-time highs, as they say, is, you know, well, isn't the market overvalued? 
Um, and, and that valuation is predicated on so many different factors. But one thing I found interesting, if you go back to, you know, like 15 years ago, the amount of public companies is about half of what it used to be. So you have a lot less uh, public companies out there and you have through these ETFs, through all these other instruments, a lot more access to investing in it. So what, when you have more and more dollars chasing less companies, you're just going to get companies that are going to go up more. So, Absolutely. you know, just by, you know, the numbers, it's, you know, that's why one of the reasons we're going higher and higher. Well, and we hit a soft patch in the economy this summer. And we're still seeing some of that soft patch play out. There's certain things that are stabilizing and no longer decelerating at an accelerating rate. So that means maybe the market hitting new highs, maybe the market is signaling that the next couple of quarters will be better than this last quarter. Could be. Right? Uh, the market tends to be a, a leading indicator, a discounting mechanism of the future. So that's what it could be signaling. It could also be signaling that uh, there's a bunch of cash out there that needs to go somewhere. And interest rates are now going lower again. That's not interesting. People are not you know, completely on board with real estate forever because we all went through that real estate crash a decade ago. So not everybody's totally excited about just buying real estate with abandon. Uh, commodities are complicated. Currencies are complicated. Uh, so stocks seem to be a good place to be, right? So it could be a, just a flow of funds thing yep. where there's money moving to the line of least resistance, yep. which is what stocks appear to be. When interest rates are 2 and 3% and you can buy a stock and get a 3% dividend and still get some upside too, and people feel comfortable with that, then they may, maybe, may, maybe they make that choice, right? And that mm -hmm. could be part of what this is all about too. So there's so many factors, and that's why they call economics the dismal science, because there's no way anybody can possibly know every little thing that's going on in everyone's head. Uh, so we have to come up with things that we think to be true, but they aren't necessarily true, because we don't know every little, every little decision everyone's making. And humans by nature are irrational, so even if you think you know everything, humans just go off and do the opposite. That, that's a fair thing to say. <laughs> yeah, so anyway, and then today, uh, today's news, the market opened up a little bit higher today on this uh, beautiful overcast Tuesday in Chicago. But Home Depot had an earnings miss, right? So that's still part of the housing trend. Housing was slowing a little bit. And so and then, you know, there's a lot of kvitching and hand-wringing and consternation over Home Depot and some of the other retail stocks. But then we took a look at our charts, and we own actually Home Depot in one of the portfolios. And many of our clients own it as well, obviously. And we looked at it, and stocks are stock is holding up actually pretty well. Mm -hmm. It's down about four percent today. But if you look at it on a long-term chart, that movement today downward isn't even enough to move it to a point where it shows up on our chart. Yep. So you know, again, this is uh, investing is a study of emotions. And it's easy to look at a day like today and make a decision based on, oh, my goodness, Home, Home Depot's down 4%. Oh, my God, I have to sell or maybe I have to buy or whatever, you know, acting very emotionally. Uh, there's a lot of buyers and sellers in a day like today. Uh, right now, the sellers are holding sway. The buyers could come back in in a couple of weeks when all this drama is over. Then we'll see what Home Depot is going to do. Yep. Right. Maybe it resumes its upward trend and it doesn't break down, but maybe... You know, maybe it is a real thing and some of the sellers come in. We, we don't really know, right? We think we know. The earnings could be good going forward. Uh, it's, it's, it's unsure. It's unsure. It is one of the top-ranked stocks in our universe, and it's down a little bit. So obviously there's some concern, but we, we really can't make a decision right now because we don't really have enough evidence. 
Yeah, you know, we want to look at the evidence. You don't want to play off of the emotion. And, you know, certainly some of the volatility we're seeing in that stock in particular today is based off of emotions and people kind of panicking or, you know, maybe they just bought it last week and now they're down four or five percent. Yeah, the guy that bought it last week, he's upset, right? Yeah, yeah he's yeah. upset. He's just saying, just sell it, just get out of it. Um, you know, so once this shakes out, uh, what we'll see, you know, three or four weeks or two or three weeks from now is kind of how is the actual company doing and, and we'll kind of see where is it going to level out at. It's also a good opportunity for, for us to see, you know, is there support for this stock? A stock that's been running and running and running, you know, when it hits a little bit of, uh, you know, when you have a little bit of adversity, I guess you could say, you know, is there enough support there or is it just going to collapse? So it's a good way for us to judge, you know, is this a strong enough stock that one does have a pullback, pullback like this? People are looking at it and saying, oh, I want to go purchase it because this is a great value now. Yes. So it's a nice test for it. So we'll see We'll see where the markets go. Right now we're all on offense. Uh, just highlighting one little micro situation with Home Depot. Um, I, I would comment, though, that the economic world, if you look into all the different metrics, and if you go on the Internet, there's so many. Uh, you know, the Atlanta Fed has so many different indicators they track and the other Fed banks. Like, for example, productivity in the third quarter was down. 0.3%. That's the first time productivity has been down. Normally productivity in this in this environment has been very strong. And frankly, it's one of the first times in an economic recovery we've seen strong wage growth and productivity and all those metrics positive. Many of the uh, weaker recoveries haven't had all those elements. So uh, on balance, we're on a pullback in the economy in a very strong run for the economy, one of the strongest in American history, actually. Uh, so we'll see if it recovers. Uh, the next data point could be a recover next year. Um, with the productivity pullback, we're still in the last year showing a positive one one and a quarter percent gain in productivity, even with this quarter's pullback. So um, you know, but the short-term trend is negative, but it still could be just a short-term blip. We don't know. And and I would also refer everyone to the Four Star website www.fourstar.com, and you can see uh, comments from economist Bob Barone. Bob Barone is an advisor who works with uh, Four Star Wealth Advisors. He's a Four Star advisor. He's also the former uh, chairman of the Federal Home Loan Bank of San Francisco, and he's a uh, national level economist, and he also writes in Forbes magazine. So we have his uh, information on our site. Uh, he has a piece about Lucy, Charlie Brown and the football relating to our continuing negotiations with China. And uh, so it might be interesting to read and we'll have Bob Barone on another future podcast with us again. Um, so if you're into economics, there's a lot to, to, to dig into. But right now, just suffice it to say that we're in a soft patch in what has been one of the strongest recoveries in a long time. Yep. Uh, I had the opportunity last weekend to go to Atlanta and I visited with some of our friends at the Atlanta Fed. And the Atlanta Fed is the Fed bank that writes the most. When you see quotes in the Wall Street Journal from a, from a Fed bank, it's most often the Atlanta Fed. It's read, led by Dave Altig and the research side. He's the chief of research. He's a friend of ours, a friend of Four Star. He happens to be a professor of mine personally from my days at University of Chicago, and now he's a big Fed economist. Uh, he was not there, but I met with John Robertson, who is one of his senior economists, and they just had a big labor labor and trade meeting in the Atlanta Fed offices and also discussed about how things play out when uh, 
you know, Ben Bernanke would come to town and Alan Greenspan and now uh, Jerome Powell, how they operate, how they work with the Fed. It's really fascinating stuff. So if you have any opportunity to learn about economics and how uh, the Fed manages the economy and manages the balance sheet and the flow of funds, it's really, I, I find it fascinating. So um, anyway, so we had a chance to meet with the Atlanta Fed the other day. Um, there are a lot of things going on in the economy that are interesting, and Chris and I have been looking at a couple of things. Chris, you uh, had been uh, doing some work on the Saudi IPO. Yep. Yeah, so um, it's been heavily in the news as of late, uh, the IPO of uh, the Saudi Aramco. Um, and uh, so as recently, they came out with a valuation. Um, the um, underwriters for the IPO came out with a valuation, and it was, I think it was at about 3.7 or maybe it was 2.7, sorry, trillion. And they were looking for 3 trillion is the valuation. So it came in under expectations. And um, so what the Saudis did is instead of accepting that and, and you know saying, hey, all right, this is undervalued for whatever reason, they're kind of pulling the IPO from the national or the international, I should say, international level uh, and just doing more or less an IPO for domestic for within the uh, Saudi Arabia um, country and then also some neighboring countries. So uh, this was a much touted and really highly expected IPO. And the fact that um, they're kind of, at least for now, delaying it from the international front is really interesting. And, and a lot of that really has to do with, um, you know, investors, especially in the Americas, are kind of valuing and geopolitical risk, um, you know, so things that, things that could happen to the oil fields over there. Uh, four months ago, I think it was, uh, we had there's an attack on a couple of the oil fields that crippled them for you know at least a couple of weeks, uh, if not a month. Um, and then also a lot of what they do is heavily predicated on the price of oil. Um, and, and everyone has their own views on oil, but I think with the U.S. really coming out as a major player in the oil market now, an exporter, um, you know, there isn't as much certainty for high oil prices in the future. Um, so there's a lot of that that's baked into the valuation of what investors are willing to pay. Uh, so now we're kind of seeing the um, Saudis go a little bit, go back to the drawing board and um, you know maybe try to diversify it there and IPO it within their own markets and then take it interna in abroad internationally. So uh, it'll be interesting to see. So there we are again with IPOs and WeWork had to bury their IPO, right? Yep. Yeah, and um, you know an interesting thing, we're still seeing a lot of trouble ever since WeWork within the IPO market in the U.S. markets. Uh, Three in every four uh, IPOs in this fourth quarter have priced below the midpoint range. Uh, that was uh, put, Ouch. yeah, that was put put up by the underwriters. So, uh, good examples: Uber, Lyft, Smile Direct Club. I think is one of the more recent ones. So, um, it's a lot. It, I think investors now, especially with WeWork, that kind of took a lot of people by you know by shock. Um, I think they're scrutinizing them a lot more, and they're saying, you know, we're not going to pay this exuberant value for something if everything's not in line and they're going to kind of ding it for every little thing and they're going to pay what they believe to be a reasonable price so um it's it's good to see i mean that's what you really want to see you know these these companies shouldn't get free passes just because they're these big technology companies you know they should be scrutinized just as much as a lot of the public companies are now so um it's, it's i think it's really good to see and we're you know hopefully seeing that evolve uh into the future with the u.s u.s markets Absolutely. 
a lot of, lot of other interesting news out there. You know, recently uh, we've had discussions on this podcast about how Facebook has gone into, uh, specifically Mark Zuckerberg has gone in to various congressional hearings and basically just turned his company over to the, <laughs> seemingly to the federal government, saying, go ahead, regulate me, you know, do whatever you got to do. And it looks like he's standing up now to some of the politicians and saying, now hold on here, uh, you know, he's surviving the congressional you know, beatdown, I would say, uh, and actually starting to see surging earnings at Facebook again as Facebook becomes more and more of a fabric. Although, ironically, most of the younger folks that might have been the technology leaders are off of Facebook onto other other uh, technology because Facebook is becoming, as the old commercial says, your your father's Oldsmobile, right? So it's like when the seniors and the plus 50 crowd gets onto Facebook, the young kids are onto Instagram or Snapchat. onto Snapchat or something else, right? And that, not even that's not cool anymore. There's other things I'm hearing about, which I can't even remember. Anyway, but, uh, but Facebook is you know, clearly become part of uh, the way we communicate. And so Zuckerberg is actually turning things around a little bit in his uh, desire to keep his company strong, and the earnings are surging as a, as a result. Also in the technology area, uh, Apple had pretty good earnings, and I, I want to mention that because uh, I've started to see some of the uh, things that would lead to the trends that Apple are de- is dealing with. Like, for example, Apple sells phones, and if they have the wrong generation of phones, they'll go the way of like a Motorola or an Ericsson, where they're just only as good as their most recent phone, right? But Apple is diversifying more into other gadgets and services, so a big part of their, their earnings are coming from other things other than just the latest phone, right? Yep. <clears throat> and uh, so uh, a close friend of mine from business school, my friend Sean Chabra, thank you, Sean, sent me a picture of his watch, a Garmin watch. So it's an athletic watch showing the, the, the path where he was able to run. Uh, now the watches are integral. You talk to your watch. You save data on your watch. Uh, so I, initially I thought watches were like, who would, who would want that watch, really? But it's actually becoming a thing. Oh, it's a thing it? now. I mean, there's even accessories for them. So now you can have, you know, the fancier watch bands. And, there, you know, the, the health information they're able to collect. You know, I think that's going to be huge going into the future, you know, as far as blood pressure. You know, we, I think we talked about this maybe two podcasts ago. Uh, I can't quite remember. But, um, you know, now you can get your make sure your rhythm, your heart's in the rhythm, you know, for uh, like an EKG kind of. Um, you, you can do so much with these watches. Uh, I think Apple right now really kind of reminds me a little bit of the transformation a little bit that Microsoft went through. Um, kind of evolving from that software giant it was and now having the cloud. Um, they have so many different avenues that they kind of uh, tack on. Um, they really had to, you know, evolve their model. And I think uh, Apple's kind of going through that now. Yeah. Uh, so it's interesting to see. And Microsoft was very, very successful with it. I mean, it's now, I think Microsoft's trading about 134, um, whereas before it was just kind of stuck in that 80 to 90 range. So they're, mm-hmm. they're starting to really build that value in it. Um, but it took years and years of kind of changing the culture a little bit, as well as the mindset of the company. Yeah. So, so uh, you know, maybe Apple's having going to have another run here with yeah. new leadership, right? Uh, and also, just uh, another corporate news: uh, the CEO turnover rate is at a 17-year high, and it's the second highest. Uh, the second highest turnover rate was 2008. There was a lot of turmoil in the economy at that time. But you know we're not sure what that trend means really. Uh, but you know clearly a CEO is a coveted role. Uh, but there could be just a generational thing going on. We don't really know 
but they just did highlight that that the CEO turnover is uh, among the highest times. And you know, when we have things like the McDonald's CEO, McDonald's is a Chicago-based company near our headquarters here in Chicago, where the CEO Steve Easterbrook is out for violating his own policy of sexual harassment. So that was pretty brilliant, I thought, right? <laughs> Uh, so McDonald's is a great company, but clearly the CEO made a dumb mistake. And so, you know, he gets to take a timeout and leave the company, right? And yep. probably a permanent timeout is what it'll be. Uh, but then we see a lot of other, you know, it's hard to be a CEO. There's a lot of uh, expectations, uh, you know, the, the WeWork fiasco as well. I mean, there's so many strange things. So leadership of companies is hard, hard work. It's yeah. really hard work. Well, and when you have CEOs that leave, um, you know, the, the companies either have the choice of, you know, promoting someone internally or usually they try to go poach another CEO. Um, I yeah. know the WeWork fiasco, John Legary, who uh, used to be the CEO of T-Mobile and is stepping down, uh, I think, May of this coming year, uh, he's been linked to taking the WeWork CEO job. So, you know, usually they're, they're, if they're jumping from a CEO role, they're going to another CEO role. So yeah. uh, with that turmoil sometimes comes, um, you know, more more CEOs jump and ship or move into other companies. Yes. So one last item in our companies and economics section I wanted to talk about is with very small fanfare, we saw a little article in the paper about how the national debt has now topped $23 trillion. So every year they're spending more money and then there's interest on the debt. And so the government is responsible for all that. That works out to be $178,000 for every man, woman, and child in the United States. So, you know, the question when this we have this galloping debt, I remember working as a volunteer with the bipartisan or I should say nonpartisan Concord Coalition in the early, early uh, uh, 90s. And the discussion was, gee, you know, how can the debt be higher than five trillion? Well, now we're at 23 trillion, right? Where is this going to end? Uh, when will it end and how will it end? Right. And so there's all these studies about <clears throat> what happens to when governments fail or currencies fail. There's already discussions about, well, we're never really going to pay down this debt and we're going to have to inflate our way out of it, right? So there's already discussions about that. And history has shown, you know, a lot of uh, circumstances in the way things uh, worked out or didn't work out. Uh, I can remember in 1994 uh, when I was a young producer at Lehman Brothers at the time and we all had stocks in Mexican companies, Tele Telefonos de Mexico and Cemex, which is this construction company in Mexico. And then all of a sudden the word came out that the Mexican government had been printing money uh, to deal with their deficits and every all our stocks were opened 40% lower the next day as the currency went down 40%. We're like, okay, well, we couldn't even sell because the stock went down. So, you know, things like that happen and uh, when governments uh, print money. So if we print money, there's going to be some sort of inflation and deflation in value, inflation in price that could happen. Uh, worst scenario, Chris, you mentioned the Weimar Republic in Germany. Yeah, so um, not a lot of people know. I mean, obviously, post-World War One Germany, uh, they got kind of handed this giant bill from a lot of the uh, allies for World War One, And, uh, you know, they were able to secure loans from America to really kind of keep a lot of those payments off and, and kind of post-World War One in Germany, for the most part, things just kept rolling. People were having a blast, I guess you could say. You know, there wasn't that feel of desperation, despair. People were a little upset over the war, but uh, for the most part, people were, were well off. 
Uh, then came in the U.S. the Great Depression, uh, and the Great Depression obviously crippling the U.S. markets. All those loans that we gave to Germany were called right back, mm-hmm. and that crippled the German economy. And what what did they do? They went and printed more and more money, and you know the more money got printed, inflation went hyper. It was hyperinflation at that point, rampant. Where you're talking, you know, 10 million Reichsmarks, I think, for a gallon of milk, you know, and and it, it just became so horrid. Um, that, you know, that's what ultimately kind of started the leading into, you know, the fascism re- regime that took over, um, you know, and the change of government that happened there. So, um, you know. And that led to Hitler. Now, we're not saying that we're going to have a rise of well, fascism in America, but. It's very uh, extreme, but that, that is a historical example of where, you know, when you have this, you know, when, you know, we're, we're, we're in debt to another country. Uh, and I think right now, you know, we're lucky that the U.S. dollar has been as strong as you know as, as it has been, and the U.S. economy is really the crucial you know economy in the global market. Um, if that were to change, obviously back then Germany was big, but after World War One, you know, they weren't necessarily a crucial part of the global economy back then. Yes. So you know, if that were to change from our standpoint, you know, <clears throat> things could be different. When you think of the implications of the of the debt America has, just like the debt of other, all these other countries, that's why the debt can be so dangerous. Because if you uh, have debts to other nations, then you cease to control your own destiny, and that's the that's the biggest issue. Uh, that's that's fueling the rise of Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. Yep. Uh, whether that is a real solution, anybody knows. Uh, FDR stopped paying interest on the debt to China during uh, during the depression uh, because they were in, in you know arguing then as well. So and that was one solution. Uh, on the other hand, we're not seeing it because in America the dollar has been the leading currency. The dollar has been so strong. Uh, I was in Montreal recently, and a fifty dollar uh, steak dinner in America was about twenty six dollars there, right? And I remember uh, just recently, a couple of years ago. Uh, with a strong dollar, my wife and I and our sons were in India. And we were in Bangalore, and we hopped in a rickshaw, an Uber. They Uberized the rickshaws in India, Chris. It's unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Anyway, we're in this little car, and it's an open air car, and we were halfway running halfway across town, and we realized the whole bill was a dollar seventy two for this ride. That'd be like a forty dollar ride in in Chicago or Phoenix or wherever. Anyway, so the dollar is so strong, everything's cheap for America. We feel good about it, um, but the, and there's no real currency that could could uh, come up and take leadership. You can't really trust the Russian ruble, the Chinese currency. We're not getting along with them. The euro is not a real currency. It's breaking down. Mm-hmm. They don't control debt issuance. The, con- you know, the whole continent is in really tr- you know, truff- rough trouble right now. So the U.S. dollar is the longest surviving currency without major disruption. And Chris and I were talking earlier how the currencies of the world usually lead to some sort of disruption, a big devaluation or something like that. There, and, and, and up until now, uh, the, longest, the longest tenure of any currency without major disruption was 200 years. We're now beyond that, yep. right? Uh, so America is now the longest surviving currency without major disruption. Let's hope we can continue with that, but it's going to have to be a coordinated structure of maybe paying down some of the debt and stop adding new debt paying the interest off, doing something different, mm-hmm. and maybe deflating the currency a little bit, like a combination of those things. Hopefully some leader figures that out. Yeah, hopefully right. the government kind of matures and gets their act together and right. you know, kind of contains it because it's it can get out of hand and yeah. you know, just like any debt, you know, that's how consumers get out of hand with credit card debt. You know, you yeah. just don't you keep pushing it off and pushing it off and before you know it, it's right there. 
We did a podcast a number of months ago about two things to worry about, and that's still one of those two things to worry about. The other was the exploding student debt, and that's already being dealt with in some fashion. So, so that's good news. Uh, on the other hand, the good, a good news, a good story, um, the president introduced a new proposal that will, will come into being and start, take place starting in January of 2021, a phase-in period requiring healthcare organizations to disclose the cost of a procedure before the procedure is done. Everyone's heard these stories about uh, a procedure for the same medical, you know, minor medical procedure would be $2,000 at one hospital, 3500 at another, and 13000 at another, and they didn't know about it until after it happened, right? Uh, and that's kind of crazy, right? What other part of our life do we not know what we're paying for when we consume it? So what, what's happened is the insurance industry obviously is covering a lot of that because insurance is covering a lot of the cost. But because we don't see those things in advance, the tension that happens at the point of sale between the buyer of a good and the seller of a good doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. So in many cases, we don't even know what the cost of our health care procedures are because we don't get the bill until after the bill's actually already been sent to our insurance because they asked for your insurance card. So by trying to bring those things back into the point of sale, that maybe that will start to minimize the inflationary tendencies of healthcare costs. So I think it's a good proposal. Yeah, I think it's a good starting point. I mean, I think it's, you know, it's starting to put a number to a very um, murky, you know, area where, you know, healthcare has been, um, you know, not as transparent as we'd like it to be. So I think it's a very good start. Uh, I think, you know, both any side would really agree that it's not the final iteration of what we really want to see. But, um, you know, you can't, you're not going to swipe that out in one foul swoop. So yeah. I'm glad to see it starting and hopefully they can keep up with that momentum and kind of keep the reform. Yeah, exactly. Healthcare costs have been way out of control and that's you know, been a big issue. Skyrocketing. <clears throat> so a couple, a couple things left before we end today. The most interesting story I, I found, and you talk about entrepreneurship, a college student in Minnesota uh, apparently was driving to uh, Iowa to a Krispy Kreme store in Iowa every week to buy a few hundred boxes of Krispy Kreme donuts. And apparently Krispy Kreme had left the state of Minnesota 11 years ago. So this uh, young budding entrepreneur was buying these Krispy Kremes and selling them to all the people on campus. And he was a big hero and, and ma making profits and selling them for more than he got them for. And maybe he got a little discount. I don't know if he bought 100 boxes, but it certainly <laughs> wasn't a ton. Well, then the Krispy Kreme company found out about it and put, put, the, put an end to it. Can't do that because he was selling it above retail. But I thought that was quite entrepreneurial, and I thought that was an interesting story. That's why uh, legal departments put not for resale not on, for a, lot, resale. Yeah, on exactly. a lot of their items. So capitalism is an interesting uh, sport for sure. And so this young gentleman did some interesting things. Uh, the last thing I wanted to comment on before we, we end for our, our co conference uh, you know, for, for the holiday, and we're going into the Thanksgiving week next week, uh, I uh, have been attending some conferences re recently. I mentioned I was in Atlanta, uh, and I was at the Fed in Atlanta. I went to the National Due Diligence Alliance, which is a group that does research and due diligence on alternative investing deals, illiquid private equity deals, either growth deals or income deals or whatever. It's very interesting. Another conference I went to the previous weekend uh, was in Colombia, and it was the RIA Elite Conference. It was a very 
uh, very international-based conference of family offices and registered investment advisors. One of the most interesting presentations I saw, though, uh, made me think of the current trends and how things change exactly the opposite of what you might think. So everyone knows now, um, you know, uh, cannabis and marijuana is a big thing in America now. Governments are allowing it. Illinois goes uh, legal January 1 this year. Uh, Colorado, obviously, is a big pot state. Uh, California is a pot state. There's a lot going on. Anyway, uh, while we were in Colombia, we were treated to a presentation by a group called Natureceuticals uh, out, of, uh, out of the country of Colombia. And what we found out in that presentation is there are only four countries in the world that are allowed to export any products in cannabis. Uh, I don't know all four of them. I know that Colombia is one, uh, Denmark is another, and Canada is another. But the countries that might import some of those products uh, want everything to be clean and they want to work with proper exporting countries that are running legitimate businesses and everything. So being in Colombia, everyone's heard of uh, some of the, or it's, it's, it's Colombia, C-O-L-O, not like Colombia, South Carolina, it's Colombia, right? Mm-hmm. And they have pictures of Juan Valdez and the coffee and every, you know, all over the airport and everything. So when you're in Colombia, but they're known for many other things. They're not known for cannabis production. They're known for cocaine and the Medellin cartel. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyone who's seen uh, the Narcos uh, show on uh, Netflix knows that some of these businesses are amazing businesses. They're just corrupt products, right? Cocaine clearly is one of them. And they're also known for prostitution. Anyone uh, remember who remembers the uh, Secret Service scandal of 2012 when the advance team got a little frisky with some of the uh, ladies uh, and, and uh, there were all kinds of scandal uh, things happened there uh, under the Obama administration. Anyway, so Colombia has always had kind of a checkered view. Interestingly enough, though, uh, Mauricio Name, who is the leader of this group, Nature Suticals, who's doing the, the cannabis and uh, the cannabinoids and the cannabis oil, uh, he's saying that there's been a mutual non-aggression pact formed between the different cartels in the country that want to participate in marijuana and the government. And it's actually, he says it's actually real. He's uh, the CEO of this company, and he's, his family has been involved in both sides of this, apparently, in the country of Colombia, that because the exporting, the importing nations want a legitimate company selling them products and cannabis, that they've had to actually open their books, create, uh, you know, reg D offering documents and everything to attract investors because they're looking for investors. So however weird this may sound, the cannabis trade being an international export trade may actually be cleaning up Colombia. It's crazy. Legitimizing, not necessarily legitimizing, but making them have to get their act together, these cartels, um, to make them legitimate business people. And then, you know, and, and cartels are legitimate businesses. They're obviously very ugly and very run and, and illegal. Yeah. But, you know, if they want to... Illegal try, product and they tend to kill people. That's that's one byproduct of, of usually of a cartel. <laughs> uh, but obviously, if they're trying to clean up their act, you know, hopefully it, it lends or tends to, um, you know, lead to less of the illegal stuff and, you know, more of this legal exportation and, you know... I think I think it, it could end up being an interesting study, I guess. You yeah. Know, what's the byproduct? Well, and who knows where it all goes, but I just thought, yeah, how interesting is that, that a product that has been illegal for so long is now so coveted in the world that, that folks that were playing an illegal game are willing to go legit 
just to be able to participate because they think the profits are going to be so big, right? Yeah. So hopefully that works. Anyway, just something interesting I thought we'd bring up. We've come to the end of our time here, Chris. I think today we've gone a little over time, actually. Um, so we're going to do another podcast in a couple of weeks, but we'll be on the other side of the Thanksgiving holiday. Yep. So we wanted to wish everybody a great Thanksgiving weekend. It's one of the best weekends when every American can participate. Uh, it's in a full American holiday. Uh, every religion, every race, every creed, uh, we all give thanks for our families, our food, and all the great things we have in this great nation. Uh, ben Franklin said America and, and capitalism and a republic is a great nation if you can keep it. Uh, we want to make sure we keep it, make America great, uh, and make sure America stays uh, the strong country that it is. And we wish everybody a great Thanksgiving. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. <laughs>